Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Okay, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast round-the-corner technology that is almost here. Today, I have Eric Voorhees, CEO of Shapeshift.io. Very interesting company. Um, the digital exchange company, they allow you to exchange, uh, for, for example, Bitcoin to Litecoin, Ethereum to Bitcoin, uh, make these exchanges back and forth between diff- different uh, digital currencies. So welcome, Eric. How are you doing? Very good. Yeah, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Um, first question is, how did you come up with this idea to create Shapeshift? What was the, the driving force behind it? Uh, well, the, the driving force was just that I, I wanted to use basically what it was providing. So back, uh, I guess two and a half years ago, um, I had some Bitcoins, which is, you know, the leading digital currency in the world. And, uh, there's hundreds of others. And, um, there was another one that I, I wanted to pick up like $500 worth just to kind of gamble on it basically um but i realized to to actually acquire it was going to take me all afternoon i was going to have to sign up at an exchange and deposit bitcoins and go through a whole big process to get it and and i thought well you know bitcoin moves anywhere in the world instantly why why can't i just snap my fingers and have this other asset immediately so that was the impetus um and i realized hmm. it it could totally be done it just hadn't been done yet so so i built shapeshift to basically allow any person or machine anywhere in the world to convert between digital assets. Yeah, I have an unusual question. Um, I've spoken now to a number of um, cryptocurrency or blockchain-related companies, and a lot of them are using the domain extension .io. Is there a reason you chose .io and these other companies do it, not a .com or .org? I think it's just a trendy thing, uh, not specifically related to the blockchain, but I think a lot of tech companies are using it. Um, hmm. probably just because dot coms are all, you know, all the good dot coms are so expensive and, right. uh, dot IO has kind of a nice, uh, symbiosis with, um, with, you know, binary code IO one, right. one, zero. one zero. Yep. Um, so it, for whatever, for whatever reason of, uh, you know, stylistic trends, it just became a thing. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so now back to uh, Shapeshift. <clears throat> so what is it that allows you to exchange Bitcoin for Dogecoin or Ethereum for Bitcoin? How do you, you know, what are the mechanics of it? How do you get it done so quickly for people? Yeah, uh, well, it's pretty simple. The best way to think of it is like a vending machine. Basically, we have an inventory of all these assets. And when you come to our site, uh, you, you tell us, you know, what you have and then what you want. And you put in your, you put in one kind of, coin and out pops another um, so we're essentially just sending you some of our own inventory and it's really as simple as that um, as far as the consumer experience goes on the back end there's all sorts of things we're doing with um, pricing and trading um, to manage our own inventories which gets a little nuanced and technical but that's that's basic process how, how are people using the service <clears throat> are there traders that are trying to use it 
for arbitrage opportunities, you know, between the different cryptocurrencies or do people just use it occasionally? What are you seeing? Um, well, we did a, a survey of our users recently. We we actually don't know very much about our users. We don't have any accounts, which is fairly unique for tech businesses or websites to not have accounts whatsoever about their users. But um, users do about seven to ten trades per month. Um, average trade is about $300 worth. And mostly, you know, the, the cryptocurrency world is still very nascent. Most of the use cases for these assets are more in the idea phases and experimentation. Um, and so most people buying and selling these coins are, are basically speculating on the future value of them. Um, doing it as, you know, as like a mindless way to gamble, but a lot of other people doing it as a more informed way of um, acquiring digital properties before uh, they become popular. So, for example, you know, Bitcoin came out in 2009-2010 and really had no use cases when it first started. No one used it for anything, you know, quote-unquote real. But a lot of people started trading it because they thought there might be use cases in the future and they started imagining what those might be. And fast forward to today and, and the coins are worth, you know, thousands and thousands of times more than they were when it started. And there are indeed real use cases. There are people using Bitcoin to send money across the world, people using the, the Bitcoin blockchain to store and prove data, um, all sorts of things. So the, some, of those things, some of those ideas that people fantasized about starting to come true, and that justifies the price people were paying years ago for it. That phenomenon is happening with all of these different assets. And so most of our customers are people that are buying and selling these things um, speculating on what their future value and applications might be. Okay. Have you seen, do you have any outliers, uh, people that trade dozens of times a day? Again, probably trying to well, arbitrage. I'm sure we do, but we don't know who they are. So mm -hmm. we don't we don't know how many users we have, and we don't know if a certain user is doing 1,000 orders a day. We wouldn't know. Um, but, you know, <laughs> some, some people okay. are probably using okay. it a lot, and some people are probably using it you know, once every few months. What, why, why did you guys decide not to have accounts and to let people use your, your infrastructure? Yeah, well, so, you know, back to when I started it, um, one of the things that adds friction to the whole process is when you have to have an account. Both just in onboarding people, you know, like signing up for accounts. Everyone has, I think, burnout on the number of online accounts they have. And even though they really only take a couple minutes to sign up for that's still a purchase, and um, it, if it's necessary for whatever reason, fine. But if you're trading these these blockchain-based tokens, um, we don't need an account at all to make it work technically. So we we decided to just scrap that. And uh, I'm a big fan of making things as easy and simple as possible, and removing steps that people thought were necessary but aren't actually necessary. So besides being it, besides it being very easy. There's a few other advantages, namely, without accounts, we're not holding people's money for any extended period of time. So this distinguishes us from most similar exchanges where they're holding, you know, millions and millions of dollars of customer money at right. any given time. We don't have accounts, which means we're not holding any money, and that's great from a financial risk perspective, um, but it also reduces our, our regulatory burdens as well. How, how do you function then? Are you the other side of a trade? If I want to buy yeah. 
Is he, okay. So, yeah, so exactly. I'm either buying from you or selling to you is what I'm doing yep. when I exchange. Yep. Again, just like the vending machine. You know, the machine owner owns some of the candy bars inside, and when you're mm -hmm. buying it, you're buying it from them. Then they're rebuying more candy bars, you know, at a, at a slightly better price than they're selling to you for. So that's how they make money on, on that profit. Okay. So, all right. So you, because of the, um, the cryptography, you can't, I mean, you can tell, I guess, who is selling to you and who is buying from you. Have you been able to track, oh, this, this particular address has bought from us X number of times or sold to us this many times or, or people using different addresses Sometimes. each time? It's both. Sometimes people will reuse addresses and then we know that it's the same person. Um, but it's just common for someone to use a different address every time. It depends sort of on the wallet software they're using, kind of what it what it defaults to. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, the way we know, you know, technically the way it works is that when you do a trade with us, we're giving you a unique, um, an, a unique address for the asset you're sending us. So if you're sending in Bitcoin, we're giving you a unique Bitcoin address that has never been used by anyone. You send your Bitcoin into that, and you've told us where you want your Ethereum to be sent, for example. And so as soon as we send your payment in, we send your Ethereum out to you. Okay, so each time you're creating a new address where you're receiving a payment. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. This, and this actually has some technical challenges because uh, we we have wallets with hundreds of thousands of addresses. And uh, most of this software is still very much beta, um, still experimental. And so we're running into weird bugs and edge cases that the developers of some of these cryptocurrencies hadn't thought of or hadn't considered. Um, really? And yeah, it creates a bunch of technical issues we have to sort out, but you know, we have to deal with all that stuff so that we can keep the user experience pleasant and quick. Any issues that would be important to regular users of different cryptocurrencies? And no, yeah, you probably don't no. want to name names, but you know anything that the public should know things, about. No, I, like things like, for example, with Bitcoin, um, when our wallet gets to about like three or four or five hundred thousand addresses, which mm -hmm. took you know a year and a half to happen the first time, but now is happening every couple months since we've been growing so fast. Right. Um, it just the 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 node itself runs into all sorts of problems trying to calculate how to put transactions together and it just gets all slow and bogged down and um, just has a decay in performance to the point where it's where it becomes unusable. So we just basically like clear out all those addresses and make a fresh new node every time we hit that threshold, you know, you know, hacky workarounds like that. Are you combining a whole bunch of addresses, you know, pooling all the money into one address, or how, what are you doing to manage these? Um, well, the, all those addresses are just addresses we created for customers to send in funds. So basically, right. they'll use it, and then it it probably will never be used again, but it might be because we allow someone to reuse an address. So basically, we have to keep all of them forever. And it's not a big deal in terms of disk space, but uh, just the the node itself has a really hard time handling that number of of private keys. Yeah, but won't the uh, I thought the address would be associated with a certain amount of money, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever. Don't you have to get the money out um, of that address? Yeah, yeah. So once once it sends into our wallet, all the funds in that wallet are in the same same essentially. Um, and since we are 
rebalancing our inventories all the time, uh, that pool is constantly churning. So within hours or at most a, a few days, someone who has sent in Bitcoin to a certain address, that Bitcoin is no longer there. It's It's been moved to somewhere else or it's in one other one of our other pools or something. So there's this constant churn of inventory um, and the address that it was sent to just becomes sort okay. of a, a lonely relic. Oh, so you're pulling the money out of it pretty much immediately after it goes in or after a certain time. Or, yeah, I mean, quickly thereafter. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. How do you make money on this? Do you charge a fee so, for the exchange? Or yeah, we, we make a spread. So basically, we're watching all the exchange rates of these assets at the various markets around the world, and we plug in with them. And we know that we can get, you know, X price at a certain moment for a certain amount of the asset. And so we will uh, charge slightly more than that to the user. And that's our that's our spread. Um, and it's not a perfect science. I mean, sometimes we'll lose a little bit of money on a trade. Sometimes we'll make more than others. But it averages out half a percent. Yeah, essentially you're a market maker for these currencies is what it sounds like. Sort of. We're more like a, we're more like a a broker or, or just a, a retailer probably a retailer is like the right analogy mm. we're a retailer of all these all these assets you know and we're sort of a an easy to use storefront where someone can just quickly go in and buy one or sell one to us okay have you had any issues with currencies moving extremely fast you have you had to stop trading or stop buying or you know for a day or so um well the cryptocurrency world is often moving very fast so that's pretty much the norm. But yeah, I mean, there are days when a certain asset will move like 20 or 50% in one day. Um, mm. And maybe half of that happens in 10 minutes or, or an hour. That can be really difficult. And we can certainly move, lose money on those movements. Sometimes we can make money too. Um, but those are rare enough that they, they're they not a not a huge deal. I mean, it all, it all averages out. Um, but certainly we have to be careful with the algorithms we use and we have to reduce our um, currency exchange risk as much as possible. Gotcha. Okay. Are there any any uh, coins that there's liquidity problems with them? You can't get rid of them if you buy into them? Um, well, you can always get rid of them. The question is, like, at what price? Um, and, yes, right. most, most of the coins have relatively illiquid markets. So, you know, Bitcoin, there's there's maybe $50 million of trading that happens every day, not on our platform, but all over the world. Um, Ethereum is, you know, 10 or 20 million. And then, you know, everything else together is maybe 10 million and there's hundreds of other coins. And so some of those have trade volumes of $20,000 or $50,000 a day. And hmm. that uh, makes a really illiquid market. Basically, if, um, if someone comes and wants to do a $2,000 order, the price we have to quote them is not good because the there will be what's bitch basically where the more you buy of something the the worse the price gets which is a little counterintuitive because most people think the more you buy of something the better a deal you should get but when it's a scarce resource and the markets are not developed it's actually the opposite so yeah there's um, liquidity risk i understand makes sense yeah yeah well not just liquidity risk but the the order books where these things trade are so shallow. If you try to buy $2,000 of it, that takes half of what's on offer. And those offers mm. go all the way up to, you know, infinite price. So a 
order that's only a few thousand dollars can move the price of something by five five percent or ten percent. And so when you show that exchange rate to the user and you show an exchange rate ten percent worse than the current price that they just saw on the ticker, they get confused and they think suddenly we're percent fee or something because they don't understand mm. the issue of slippage. So that's that's a hard thing that's been difficult to to consumers. Okay. And regulatory wise, have you run into any problems? I mean, you're you're essentially trading for your own account. So are there yeah, any we, regulatory issues that affect you? Uh no, with the exception of New York, uh New York state issued what's known as the license, which was a whole horrible piece of legislation basically requiring people to endanger their users by taking all sorts of private information from them, um, amongst other problems. And we basically had a moral disagreement with with what they were doing. So we blocked New York. So we don't operate in New York. It's the one territory in the whole world where, uh, oh. where you can't use shapeshift. But other than that, um, it's been good. I mean, we have a few principles that reduce our regulatory risk. Um, such as the fact that we're not holding customer money. That's that's huge from a consumer protection right. angle. Um, and we also don't touch any real money. So we don't do anything with dollars, euros, or British pounds, any of that stuff. So we stay out of the banking regulation, and we, we never will touch those things. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So, okay, so people can't um, use cash to get Bitcoin on your network or cash to get any... Uh... They can't use regular money to get any of these cryptocurrencies from your network. Nope. And they can't trade out of it to regular money as well, right? Correct. Yeah, we we don't do any exchanging for money of any kind anywhere. Huh. Very interesting. And can you can you name the law in New York again? That uh, I, I'm not sure if I heard it clearly. What's the name of the legislation? It's called the uh, the Bits License, like Bitcoin Bits License. A bit license, okay. Bit license, yeah. It was, uh, so, it was created by this, by this, by the New York Department of Financial Services. The head guy there was Benjamin Lofsky, and basically, um, most people really hated this legislation, but they passed it anyway. A couple dozen Bitcoin companies dropped service in New York, and then Ben Lofsky left the left the department, and most of the other people. Now that department is just stuck with this horrible piece of legislation. They've only processed two licenses out of the last two and a half years. There's like 40 applications stuck in process. It's just like the, a horrible example of bureaucracy gone bad. What, what did the license you require you to do? New York. Um, well, yeah, the, <laughs> the uh, application itself was 40 pages of questions. Oh. So you can imagine what the actual bill was like. Um, from the people I know that have applied, the actual application with all the included information that they needed was between one and 200 pages of documents. So this included everything like fingerprints of everyone who works at your company, background checks on everyone who works at your company. Um, you would have to apply uh, and get approved for every change that you wanted to make to your service. So as, as bad as the application was, the real cost is actually just in um, just in maintaining that license over time. So every every time you wanted to make a change to your service, you'd have to get it formally approved by the by the New York Department of Financial Services. You can imagine how fun that is. Yeah, um, and <laughs> yeah, I mean if you if you wanna if you wanna 
you know, see how wretched this thing is, you can just look up the, the bit license application online and read through the questions and you'll, you'll realize, you know, that it represents all that's wrong with government. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. All right. Um, do you feel like uh, you're perceived as a target for hackers? You know, because maybe they, they think that you have uh, tons of money, you know, sitting in various accounts or have you guys been relatively safe? Yeah. So any, I mean, any company in the Bitcoin world is a, is a huge target for hackers. Um, Bitcoin itself is safe. The protocol has never been hacked, but it's, it's very much like digital gold. And if you don't secure it right and someone gets it, they can run off with it and you'll never get it back ever. So hmm. you have to be, you have to be very careful. And, uh, any any company holding any type of cryptocurrency is a target. Um, we have the advantage of not holding customer money though. So where most exchanges are holding tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars worth of customer cryptocurrency, we don't hold any. Hmm. So if you know if we get hacked, which we actually did get hacked earlier this year, we had a, a rogue employee who stole a bunch of funds. It was only our funds, and it was an amount that was very painful but not devastating. Um, right. And, you know, it was no, no customers lost anything. So in, you know, interestingly, if we had complied with the bid license um, in New York, we would have had to have personal private information on all of our users that they would have had to sign right. it. And when that hack happened, all that information would have been leaked out into the, into the dark web and sold and all that private information would have been sold online. So tens of thousands of our users would have, been compromised because of that that horrible law. So because we don't yeah. hold customer money and because we don't take unnecessary private information from people, we actually protect both ourselves and our customers probably better than any other exchange can. That's great. What what are you going to do though as you grow? I would think you would need to hold more and more money in different currencies in order to be able to service you know higher volume. So at some point, I mean you may be, you know, It'd probably be a great thing, but you may have to have millions on hand in order to service all the transactions. Yeah. So generally, as volume grows, we do need to increase inventory, but it's not a one-to-one -one thing. So if we increased our inventory by double, you know, and we maybe put in some better auto balancing and systems like that, um, we could handle 100 times the volume. So it's it, there is there is some cost to scaling but it's not uh, it's not prohibitive have you thought about doing just in time transactions where you don't own any currency but as soon as someone wants to do a transaction you'd go buy it and resell it the problem is you it can't be just in time because if if we had zero zero assets and someone came to buy some let's say 10 ethereum um we would have to buy that at a at a normal exchange, and then we would have to withdraw it from that exchange, and that process can take hours. So mm. that already makes it, you know, <laughs> uh, inconvenient for the user. So we have to hold some Ethereum ourselves. So as soon as someone buys it, we can send that right away to them, and then we can deal with the inventory balancing ourselves later. Okay, got it. And what have you noticed about the uh, the different coins? Now that you you trade in a lot of them, you know any any um, have different characteristics that people wouldn't be aware of. You know you mentioned Bitcoin is obviously the most liquid, then Ethereum and on down. But any anything else you've noticed? Yeah, um, 
so sort of the first generation of these were mostly um, were mostly clones of Bitcoin, but they would have because Bitcoin's open source, so anyone can basically clone it and make their own. Um, and they would have maybe like a few of the rules tweaked or, you know, a different different name and maybe a different mining algorithm or something. They were all small changes to Bitcoin. And, and basically they were all trying to compete with Bitcoin as a as a cryptocurrency, as a form of money and payment. And most people rightly thought that that was a little silly. Um, few of those were doing anything useful. And Bitcoin had this huge network effect. So they were, they were kind of pointless. Um, and a lot of people were confused why I started Shapeshift because they were like, well, why are you making this exchange for these these assets that are kind of useless? And the reason was because I saw the trend, which was that, uh, well, the current crop of those new new assets were um, pretty useless, people were going to keep innovating. And at, at this point, we have things like Ethereum, which are not just a clone of Bitcoin, but are an entirely new type of of blockchain blockchain asset. Um, right. And it is not necessarily trying to compete with Bitcoin as a form of currency or form of money. Um, Ethereum, for example, is a token that allows you to uh, pay the, the people running the Ethereum blockchain to do distributed computations. And that uh, that's different enough uh, to Bitcoin that both of them will probably exist together and, and each makes the other one better. And so with that understanding, a lot of the new a lot of the new assets are um, doing innovative things that help the ecosystem as a whole, and that's why that's why I built Shapeshift. Okay. Any other um, behaviors you're seeing in the currencies? Um, no, I mean there's there's always the speculative bubbles that that happen sort of in any market, and you see them in a microcosm and in the cryptocurrency world. Um, for people that that love to day trade and and just love financial markets in general, they're really cool to study because the movements are exaggerated. They they move a lot more, a lot faster, and um, it's it's just interesting to watch how the sort of bubbles of sentiment rise and fall over time with these things. But um, yeah, I mean it's a whole it's a whole little universe of of innovation, and uh, we're just playing one small part in helping it to grow. Okay. Um, what do you see as uh, the near near term future of the next few years of the the different currencies? Which ones do you think will go away? Which ones do you think will rise to prominence? Any other things you think are going to um, happen? Probably ninety eight percent of them will go away and fail. Uh, hmm. So a good way to think of it is sort of like uh, dot coms in the nineties and lots of experimentation, lots of really either bad ideas or good ideas that were poorly executed, and you know. Many of those sites ended up failing and going away, but the internet itself and the concept of websites definitely didn't go away. People just started getting better and better and better, and now we have a whole great internet full of uh, wonderful websites to visit. So that sort of period of experimentation with this technology is what we're going through over the next few years, and I think we'll see a number of really interesting you know, home run use cases that are obvious in hindsight, but which before they were built, no one would have predicted. You know, just kind of like Facebook, right? In the 90s, no one mm. theorized about Facebook, and yet it became the most important website in the world. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, are you working on any new currencies that have come out? I heard about Zcash 
just came out a little over a week ago. Were you guys trading that? Any other new ones that yep. were up and coming we, and interesting? Yeah, we added Bcash. Uh, that was one we were big fans of. Um, and uh, before that, uh, Augur, which is a, for a, a token for a decentralized prediction market. Uh, we like that one a lot. Um, on the on the horizon, you know, maybe one or two more by the end of the year. Um, but we we're, we're trying to build a lot more of the the backend systems to do the trading a lot more intelligently and, and our own balancing and things like that. So we're not really, you know, except for those tokens that come out that are really popular, we're not too focused on adding more at this time. Okay. And then what about transaction speed? Um, Bitcoin, I would guess, is the fastest at 10 minutes to verify, or are there faster ones? And can you exceed Bitcoin the fastest uh, verification? Slowest. Yeah, really? Bitcoin is the slowest. So um, when Bitcoin was released, I mean, Satoshi, the guy that created it, pretty much just picked a, a random round number as the interval for how frequently blocks would happen. And that was 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And um, that period of time works works just fine for certain types of money movements. You know, if you're, if you're sending $100,000 to someone in another country, waiting 10 or 20 or 30 minutes for that to clear is no big deal, especially because it would take days and charge a bunch of money to do it with another method. But for small payments, uh, it is not feasible or not practical to, to wait 10 minutes or 20 minutes if the block takes a while. So one of the first things that some of the new assets started innovating on was just making faster block speeds. And um, there is some benefit to that. So so Bitcoin is, is kind of the, the slowest of the whole herd. Um, sure. And it still it still works fine. It's just that that's that was one of the pain points I think that came out that that Satoshi hadn't appreciated fully. So Ethereum, for what example, blocks happen like every 25 seconds, I believe. Oh wow! Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Um, have you thought about offering um, other? instead of just being a buyer and a seller, any other um, financial products? I mean, I don't, this, this probably would stray into, I guess, regulated behavior, but options on currencies, uh, futures, things like that? Um, not those. There is a, a derivative product that we're working on right now, but we haven't we haven't announced it or launched it yet. But, uh, yeah, certainly as, as the blockchain ecosystem grows, you know, all sorts of financial products that are currently built in the traditional legacy analog world are being recreated um, in a much more elegant and efficient way in the digital world. So we, we will certainly pursue those opportunities as we see them. Okay. You, any comment on which, which kinds of derivatives you think uh, may come about, either through you or someone else, or it's just I, any that are I currently? I think all of the all of the derivatives will will exist in the blockchain world, plus more that can be created only on a blockchain. Um, and that that's an interesting world that is, is yet to be explored. But basically, anything that provides economic utility between two parties, which is you know the purpose of all these various derivatives, um, that that need doesn't tend to go away just because the money you're using is based on the blockchain. So um, all those products will inevitably be built um, on, on blockchains. And uh, now that 
big financial institutions and banks are getting very involved in the blockchain world you know over the last year um, I imagine that that there's quite a few projects getting built by them that that aren't yet announced yet but will be soon okay all right um, anything else I should have asked you that uh, that we should cover um, no I, those were those were great questions so I, I think that's pretty good all right and then, all right. So, you, for people listening, I'm I'm fascinated in this. I think I'm going to uh, buy and sell some through your network for you know for sure. But for people that want to get involved, how do they get involved and, and either buy or sell to you to Shapeshift IO? What do they do? Um, well, if they're interested in the blockchain Bitcoin world at all, the best thing to do first is to just go buy a little bit of Bitcoins and play around with it. You know, go buy fifty dollars of Bitcoin. Learn how to get it at an exchange, how to how to have a wallet and keep it safe. Send it from yourself to a friend or between two accounts that you have, and just see how that how that money moves around. and And you'll realize when you compare that to how money moves around through banks, why it's so so elegant. Um, that's mm-hmm. that's sort of the first step. And if that captures your imagination, then you know there's a whole whole world of interesting projects getting built in this in this area. Um, if you want to sort of just keep an eye on all the various tokens, uh, we have an app, sort of a, a sub-branded product called CoinCap, which is a, a mobile app and a website. Um, you can go to coincap.io, so C-O-I-N-C-A-P.io, and it's a ranking of all the different cryptocurrencies by market cap, and it shows sort of in real time the, the trading going on and the movements. So it's kind of an addicting app, and you can just kind of watch the these things rise and fall. That's what I would oh, recommend. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a great resource. Okay, coincap.io. Excellent. All right, well, this has been a uh, a great interview. I really appreciate your time. It's fascinating, and uh, you're, you're definitely an interesting player in the uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain world. So thanks a lot for the, uh, the interview time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.